The Ruth Page School of Dance is a platform for developing great artists and connecting them with both audiences and community. Find audition information for the school's International Dance Experience, a four-week summer intensive featuring teaching artists from all over the world, at ruthpage.org. friends and welcome to the Dance Edit podcast. I'm Margaret Fuhrer. I'm Courtney Escoyne. And I'm Lydia Murray. We are editors at Dance Media and in today's episode we'll be talking about how Brexit is further complicating life for UK dance organizations that are already struggling due to COVID. We'll discuss a dance magazine piece talking about the ways the pandemic has actually changed the dance world for the better over the past few months. And we'll continue in that reflective vein by discussing what we hosts have learned in our one full year, one year, oh my goodness, of making this podcast. Um, Because yes, this episode marks our official anniversary, which is bananas. And then after all that, we'll have our interview with Brinda Guha, who is a choreographer and teacher and curator and administrator. She sees this industry from so many different perspectives. And she went deep into how we can use this pandemic time to reevaluate our broken systems in the dance world and meaningful steps that dance educators can take right now to decolonize their classrooms. There's so much food for thought in her interview. Um, but first, our usual housekeeping. And this week, that's a reminder that we also have a Dance Edit newsletter. It is a daily digest, a highly digestible digest, a very easy read, um, and it'll keep you up to speed on all the newsiest dance news. And if you're already subscribed, please refer your dance friends, your dance friends of all kinds. There'll be something for everybody in there. You can find out more about the newsletter and sign up for it at thedanceedit.com. All right, now it's time for our weekly dance headline rundown, which is super jam-packed this week. Lydia, go for it. So, New York City Ballet has announced that principal dancer Lauren Lovett is leaving the company. She will give her final performance with City Ballet on Saturday, October 9th, dancing Jerome Robbins' Opus 19, The Dreamer, and Alexei Ratmansky's Namuna, a grand divertissement. She said she's decided that leaving the company now will give her the time to fully explore new creative projects as both a choreographer and dancer, and she's really excited about the future. So best wishes to Lauren Lovett. Yeah, selfishly sad that we won't see her on stage anymore at City Ballet, but really excited to see what is next for her because she's so talented. Yeah, she's absolutely brilliant. And then I think also we're very curious to see what's going to happen with City Ballet's uh, roster over the next year because Maria Karoski, Ask LaCour, and Gonzalo Garcia are also giving their final performances next season. So there's about to be a bit of a shift, I think. Yeah, we'll see. Texas Ballet Theater has had to shut down its Fort Worth facility after a water pipe break during Winter Storm Uri caused what the company referred to as catastrophic damage, including the destruction of the sprung floors in every studio. Classes and rehearsals have moved to the company's Dallas studios for the time being, and there is a really fund on top of the already existing really fund from the pandemic. Oh, gosh. We will link to that really fund in the episode description so you can give if you have the means. 
the London Contemporary Dance School is overhauling its curriculum and admissions process to make its training more inclusive and to better prepare students for the world post-COVID. West African, hip-hop, and South Asian dances will have more representation on the curriculum, and the admissions process will focus on students' potential more so than current skills. The school is also developing a training program according to science-based research and the concepts of elite sports training in order to better support physical and mental health. In an open letter published in German magazine TANS, 13 dancers at Mecklenburgische Staatstheater in Schwerin, Germany, spoke about 12 of the company's 14 dancers facing the loss of their jobs at the end of the current season, not due to the pandemic, but because of new leadership at the theater. According to the letter, shortly after being appointed at the end of the 2019-20 season, the theater's new intendant, which for those of you who are unaware is a position awarded by the government, Uh, fired the troupe's ballet director, then hired a new ballet director who chose to hire back only one of the 14 dancers. Uh, The dancers say that the new director had seemingly already decided to end their contracts before seeing them dance and are speaking out to draw attention to the precarity of dancers' careers at German theaters in the current system. A very complicated story dealing with the intersection of politics and artistic direction in theaters in Germany that has come up time and time again. Yeah, yeah, a whole lot to unpack there. We will link directly to the protest letter that German magazine Tanz published it on their website. Kotzbahn Cultural Park's Outdoor Spring Festival is set to include premieres from American Ballet Theater, performances by the Martha Graham Dance Company, and a Patti Smith tribute to Bob Dylan. The festival is happening during the last two weekends in May, and Smith will perform on the 22nd, two days before Dylan's 80th birthday. This is huge. It's massive. Pretty cool to see Kotzbahn getting coverage in places like Rolling Stone. I'm kind of loving it. Very exciting. And while Lincoln Center will not be giving indoor performances at any of its iconic stages this spring, the organization has announced that it will be hosting rehearsals, performances, workshops, graduations, and more at 10 outdoor spaces around its campus beginning April 7th. In addition, Lincoln Center will be partnering with the New York Blood Center and Food Bank for New York City to host blood drives and offer food distribution services alongside its artistic programming. And the outstanding choreographer and dancer Lena Butler has been named Gibney Company's first ever choreographic associate. The position is full-time and lasts for three years. So congratulations to Rena. So well-deserved. Congratulations. And really cool that they're giving her space to pursue her choreographic career while also working with the company. Uh, In slightly less cheery news, according to a report released last week by the New York State Comptroller's Office, between December 2019 and December 2020, employment in New York City's arts, entertainment, and recreation sector dropped by 66%, which is, they say, the largest drop of all parts of the city's economy. Not surprising, still stark. Yeah, one of those things that we already knew, and yet seeing the number on the page is still a hit. Indeed. Uh, In New York next month, wedding receptions will resume and guests will be allowed to dance, but only with members of their immediate household or family confined to their own dancing areas or zones. The zones should be at least 36 square feet in size and at least six feet apart from other tables and dance zones. Uh, That's going to be weird, but at least there's going to be some kind of dancing at some kind of wedding somewhere in the United States. (laughs) Yeah, leaning into the positive. (laughs) Uh, Jason Sudeikis was the subject of much Twitter chatter during the Golden Globes, not because of his win, but because he accepted his award via Zoom while wearing a tie-dye hoodie. Come to find out, 
He wore the hoodie to show support for Forward Space, a dance space fitness center founded by choreographer Kristen Sudeikis, yes, Jason's sister. I love that story. I just love that it was a meme that then we found out how to dance angle. How delightful is that? And Forward Space is great. One of our sister publications, Dance Teacher Magazine, has a beautiful new website, so go check that out at dance-teacher.com. Jimmy Gaminette de los Heros died of COVID-19 at age 63. He was the resident choreographer at Miami City Ballet for the company's first 13 years, which was a piece of ballet history I personally was unaware of. Uh, And he also directed an eponymous company in Miami and later the National Ballet of Peru. Tomorrow is the last day to apply for Cultural Solidarity Fund microgrants, which provide emergency relief to individual artists and cultural workers. And it's the last day to register for the Dance NYC Virtual Symposium, which will take place from Wednesday, March 17th to Saturday, March 20th. Yes, two important deadlines. We will include links to both of those sites in the episode description. All right, so... In our first roundtable discussion today, we want to talk about the sort of one-two punch that has hit UK dance organizations over the past year. Um, As a recent article in The Guardian laid out, not only do companies have to contend with COVID, they are now also grappling with Brexit-related complications. Because Brexit means new visa rules and taxes and transportation restrictions that make touring Europe pretty much unviable for most UK performing arts organizations. And there are also unresolved questions about co-producing work with other European venues, about bringing international artists into the UK, all of these issues, they could have potentially devastating financial consequences for these companies that are already stressed by the COVID shutdowns. And these problems aren't limited to the professional dance world either. Brexit is also affecting dance training in the UK. So lots to unpack here. So as Colette Hansford pointed out, uh, she's the executive producer at Hafesh Sector Company, Brexit is actually likely to have a stronger impact on UK dance and theatre companies because it's long term and it affects the production and export of work. Whereas COVID is easier to work around and is expected to, you know, of course, eventually subside, even though the effects of both obviously combined pose a serious problem. Which does tell you something about what an absolute mess Brexit is if you're saying by comparison, COVID's easy to work around. Yeah. Yeah, kind of a disaster. To start, um, currently the 27 member states of the EU each have their own guidelines for visa and work permits. So that makes multi-country tours more expensive and complicated. For one, it increases the cost of transporting any physical components of a production like musical instruments or a set. Uh, And this is compounded by regulations referred to as cabotage, which only permit UK trucks to make two trips after coming into the EU. Uh, Also, the requirements for foreign nationals who work with arts companies in Britain are unclear. Uh, To illustrate how the situation is playing out, uh, the National Theatre recently halted its European touring, saying that it was currently not financially viable. Um, And contemporary dance companies have typically toured Europe often. They have strong followings there, while the audience for contemporary dance in Britain is smaller. For Akram Khan Company, for example, international revenue has accounted for 72% of its income over the last two decades. And the complexity of the new rules for visas, taxes, and transportation also mean that companies now need to devote more resources to administration just to successfully navigate them all. The article notes that companies who can afford to are actually beefing up their admin staff, like adding full-time employees who just deal with visas and travel logistics and tax issues. But smaller organizations, of course, absolutely do not have the resources to do that. 
right? Yeah, it's hurting emerging companies and artists, including dance students. If there's a concern that dancers entering the professional world would face more difficulty getting contracts in EU-based companies, since it would be harder for employers to arrange the right visas. Um, and it would be more expensive for UK-based companies to employ dancers from other countries. And Brexit's visa changes might also you know, discourage artists from, from abroad from coming to the UK, which could have a majorly detrimental impact on the British dance scene. It would create the loss of a lot of international talent, uh, along with the diverse artistic perspectives and approaches that they bring. Yeah, well, and I think it's worth noting that the UK like really does have something of an outsized impact on the contemporary dance scene when you look at the actual size of the country. Um, the UK has such a massive footprint in contemporary dance, and a huge part of that does have to do with that free travel between Europe and the UK. So, you know, there's the um, pro-Brexit mentality, maybe, that's like, oh, well, this is fine because it just means that British dancers are going to have more opportunity, when the reality is there aren't actually enough high-level British dancers coming up to actually fill all of the need that there is. And also, you know, if it's more difficult for British companies to tour abroad, that means that they can hire less dancers to come abroad with them. It means that they can hire less dancers from the continent, sure, but also means that the dancers who are actually in the UK and UK citizens maybe aren't going to get the same breadth of experience that they might have otherwise. It might also in turn lead to fewer dancers getting hired, period, because of the increased costs due to taxes, due to visa regulations and restrictions. I mean, just the simple fact of if you want to do a tour that lasts longer than, you know, X number of months, like the fact that each person who is being taken on tour is going to have to go through this whole visa process, which has to be sponsored by the company and is extremely, extremely complex, the administrative overload is going to be so much. As it is, you know, like even pre-Brexit, like if you as an American dancer wanted to try to go dance in the UK or in Europe, the fact that you would have to be applying for a visa and a visa would have to be sponsored oftentimes has something to do with whether or not you're able to get those gigs because companies can only afford to sponsor so many visas. So this is just a cascading thing of effects. I do think it's worth noting we're not going to know the complete uh, picture of what this means for dance in the UK and dance in Europe for at least another several years, not least because COVID is ongoing um, and also because the legislation is still being worked out. I mean, it was still being worked out when Brexit officially happened in December, which we kind of didn't notice. But the complete disarray right now is very troubling and a somewhat alarming sign. It is crazy that Brexit happened in December and it barely even registered in U.S. news coverage. There was just so, much, so many crises at once. So much going on. <laughs> All right. So... In our next segment, we're going to sort of take a deep breath and pull the conversation back in a, a slightly more optimistic direction. So Dance Magazine recently published a piece by Kathleen McGuire, who is the founder of the Dancer Mental Health Organization, Minding the Gap. And her article discusses some of COVID's dance world silver linings. Because as we approach this one year mark of shutdowns, it's really easy to let ourselves get mired in all the ways this time has been difficult and tragic for dance and dancers. And that is, of course, a, a normal and completely valid response to a crisis, especially one of, of this magnitude. But it is also valuable to think about how the pandemic has changed us for the better, too, because we are going to be different on the other side of this and not just in negative ways, but also in some positive ways. 
Yeah, so Kathleen laid out kind of seven key silver linings that we can take forward out of this time alongside advice for how we can actually keep it going once we're back to quote-unquote normal. So those included, um, we've all gotten really good at problem solving uh, creatively. It's given space to talk about difficult issues, in particular dances, continual issues with racial inequity. We've all become very independent. Uh, we've had a chance to breathe and take time away from the studio, um, which at the same time has allowed us to expand our concepts of who we are outside of being a dancer, a choreographer, a person who does nothing but dance. It's given us learning opportunities, and it's also clarified what do we actually want out of our dance careers and out of our lives, maybe outside of dance. Essentially, the point is, we've had a moment I say a moment, it's been a year, but we've been able to pause. And that has given us a lot of opportunity to really take a step back and evaluate and think. And we've done a lot of that here on this podcast. And I think hopefully the dance world collectively and dancers as individuals have been doing the same thing so that when we come back on the other side of this, we're not just trying to get back to business as usual. Yeah. And I think unsurprisingly, this story hit on a lot of themes that we have been coming back to over and over again on the podcast. The idea of getting off, like having time to breathe, getting off that always be creating treadmill that a lot of dance artists find themselves on, get have time to actually heal injuries, take care of mm. physical bodies as well as mental health. That one I think is especially important. There's also when we're talking about embracing dancer independence, the story talks about the fact that we had to find creative solutions to pandemic restrictions that pushed many dancers to discover an entrepreneurial side, which like... Yeah, my immediate reaction to that was very cynical because my like gimlet eyed view is like, yeah, they had to hustle because they had to eat. Like, that's a bigger problem. We need to fix that. But it is also true that, yes, those leadership skills are going to serve artists well in a post COVID world. Yeah, I actually have always loved the idea of dancers um, embracing that entrepreneurial spirit that we already have and channeling it in new ways. And so that's something that I think we've seen during the pandemic, and that's been really great to witness. And yeah, as Margaret said, having time to breathe is important, having time to heal and take care of ourselves because we're usually so busy and we're usually so focused on you know getting the next thing and doing the next project and you know so forth. And we're not always necessarily taking the time we need to you know just heal. Well, and I also think that. Um... Again, like the idea of we as dancers kind of as a whole have a tendency to over-identify with our work. And so I think taking this moment to figure out who you are outside of the studio, much as you might like miss being in the studio and want to be back in the studio, and maybe this is clarifying how important that is to you, but also taking the time to figure out like, what do you value? What makes you happy outside of dance? Because uh, as is pointed out in the story, you were a whole human being before you started dancing, you're going to be a whole human being after you stop dancing someday. And that's okay. And that's valid. And I, I hesitate to like add the caveat of like, it's only going to enrich your artistry as you go back in. Because I do get that like, I personally kind of needed to have that caveat to like, actually commit the time to doing that when I was coming up. But I, I think it's also just important in its own right. Like you are important and valid and wonderful and whole even when you are not actively dancing for me honestly in the past when i was younger and dancing i would hear that and it sounded kind of 
like a cliche or like it was sort of something people said to, you know, appease people who, you know, couldn't dance for because they had an injury or something like that. And then I realized, no, that that really is important. You know, it really is important to nurture yourself as an entire person. Dance doesn't have to be your life. And there's so much more to you than dance. And I feel like in a way, it, it, even though it's obviously awful that this is happening, it's almost sort of comforting, I think, to know that we're kind of all in this together. Whereas if you're, you know, injured or something like that, you can kind of be a little bit more prone to feelings of isolation. The idea of problem solving becoming second nature. I, I do think this has made many of us more resilient, but I think it's important to be gentle with ourselves if we do have moments of feeling tired um, of having to be resilient during um, any either any future challenges or this one as it continues. I feel like if those moments come, accept them so you can ultimately keep moving because if you have low points, it might be tempting to kind of add to that challenge by beating yourself up about having those feelings in the first place, or at least, you know, that's something that I've struggled with. And I think it's important to let yourself feel them, acknowledge them, know that they're valid, and you can still continue. But I'm not a mental health professional, so <laughs> that's just my two cents. It's okay not to be okay. A lot of us have been not okay over the last year. You're, it's not just you. Yeah. Um, the piece concludes with this great quote from Jennifer Milner, who's a teacher and coach, and I just wanted to read it because she's talking about dance as like a grand old house that's been through a big storm. And she says, do we want to get out the old blueprints and rebuild it exactly the way it was? Are we trying to restore a historic landmark that is revered and admired but isn't really lived in? Or are we going to take the time to ask what we can improve? And I feel like that applies to sort of like dance as a whole and also to dance artists as individuals. We're thinking about our approach to our own practice as well as the field's approach at large. So we're going to move on to our last roundtable segment, which is on a related theme, because not only are we coming up on the one-year COVID-versary, um, but we're also marking this episode one year, one full year of making this podcast. And we're going to welcome Cadence for this segment because we want the whole team here. So hi, Cadence. Hi, everyone. No planets are in retrograde. How are we feeling? <laughs> we're feeling great. The Mar month of March is full of abundance and nothing is getting in our way. You heard it here first. <laughs> this is all yes. going in the podcast. <laughs> so it is pretty wild to think that we started this adventure a full year ago back in that glass-walled audio producer's nightmare of a WeWork conference room. It is even wilder to think that we had no idea at that point what the wider world was about to go through. So we wanted to just take a minute to reflect on what we've learned over 12 months of dance podcast making, 11 months and two weeks of which have been remote dance podcast making. How did our expectations of what we thought we'd be covering and how we thought we'd be covering it, how did they compare to the reality, everyone? It's so hard to even remember what I thought we'd be covering anymore mm -hmm. because, you know, I'm just so used to what we ended up focusing on. Well, because I can remember like having the sense of like, are we are we going to have enough to actually fill up? Like, I think at mm -hmm. the time we thought it was going to be like a 15 to 20 minute podcast. And we were like, man, if you cut out all the like random asides and stuff, like, are we going to have enough to fill a full <laughs> episode? Like, is there going to be enough to talk about? And then, and the universe said, "You're gonna learn today." 
2020 said hold my beer yeah and it wasn't even just a content I mean it was definitely a content question but it wasn't even just a content question it was also a tone thing Mm. because I think we started Mm -hmm. out thinking it's gonna be light it's gonna be snappy it's gonna be newsy very bing bang boom we're gonna have a horoscope corner I mean, I, th- I still think there is a time and place for that. I think it's going to come. We're going to do it at some point, Cadence. But the news we were covering, I mean, it was so heavy that quickly it became apparent that that kind of tone would have been irresponsible. And mm-hmm. I actually like cringe a little bit listening to myself in some of our early episodes as I personally at least was still trying to figure out the right tone, trying mm-hmm. to figure out that balance. Um, I think part of that was also, and I don't want to speak for you guys, but for me at least, I'm very much a writer first, yes. so figuring mm-hmm. out how to talk about dance on the record, like the immediacy of yeah. this format, still figuring that out. Well, like I know like if I were to like sit down and do like a stream of consciousness, like typing out my thoughts versus just like speaking a stream of consciousness, somehow the typed version would still make more sense. That is how my mm-hmm. brain works. Yeah. Yeah. I, but I am, I'm endlessly grateful that First of all, doing the podcast every week pushed me to think deeply about some really difficult and really complicated topics, like forced me to engage even when Mm -hmm. I was feeling completely overwhelmed or exhausted. And I think we've all said things like this at various points, but I'm a better journalist and a better person because of that. And I think somehow this recording this podcast and being on this podcast, while often anxiety inducing, has... Both kind of forced and helped me to learn to think more critically. I think I am someone who perhaps had gotten in the habit of reading the headline and kind of grazing over news stories, reading them very quickly. But knowing that I was going to appear on the podcast and I had to discuss these things more in depth, I've read much more carefully. And these are important issues, like reading about the kind of legislation that would help the dance world to come back after the pandemic is the kind of very you know, granular article that I probably wouldn't have read so carefully before. And it's the kind of article that I'm really glad that I did because I understand it differently now. And this podcast forced me to do that. When I started, I was just just straight up new for one thing. So I didn't really know you guys. (laughs) It's been fun just, you know, getting to to know and work with you all, um, all this time. And I've kind of focused more on dance administration and also just marketing and that kind of thing. And kind of transitioning more toward the journalism side this was really helpful for that i've you know done so much research it's just been a great learning opportunity i think it was interesting margaret mentioned this earlier just how neatly our the start of our podcast lined up with the beginning of the pandemic and i feel like we have experienced this pandemic in the dance world live on this podcast you could probably go back and find an early episode where we're like oh this will all be over in a month and then just watching how we've we've learned that together on here, I think is really amazing to me. I mean, I just want to say thank you to, first of all, the three people in this Skype call right now that we're recording, but also thank you to everybody who's listening or reading, reading the transcript, because now we have transcripts available. <laughs> um, but thank you to our, our audience for it your support of the work that we're doing and also especially for your own contributions to this Mm -hmm. ongoing conversation in the comments via twitter in our dms i've learned a ton from all of you this past year it's been hard but wonderful also i think as i said many times in the early days of the pandemic time is fake it's been a year what (laughs) time is very fake (laughs) 
Uh, but we are officially out of time, of real time, on this podcast. So <laughs> we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll have our interview with Brenda Kuha. Stay tuned. Welcome back, dance friends. Our guest on the podcast today is Brinda Guha. Hi, welcome. Hi, how are you? Good. Um, Brinda is an artist, a choreographer, a teacher, a curator, an arts administrator. She's involved in all these different corners of the dance world. But can I ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Thank you so much, Margaret. Um, so my name is Brinda Ananya Guha. I identify as a non-disabled, caste-privileged, cisgendered, and queer South Asian woman. Um, I'm trained in Indian classical Kathak dance, but I have extensive experience as well in Manipuri, East Indian classical dance, and flamenco, Spanish classical dance. Um, I uh, am the managing, I guess, director, you can say. We're rethinking all of our titles these days, but artistic director, managing director of Kalamandir Dance Company, which it was founded by my mother, Guru uh, Malabika Guha, who's also my teacher, um, back in 2010, and now is under my direction uh, for the last 10 years. Uh, we are working on a style of dance called Kalamandir style of contemporary Indian dance. And I consider contemporary Indian dance a very large umbrella, legacy umbrella of ideologies under this umbrella. And Kalamandir is trying to find their place in that. I am also a uh, events producer. I'm the curator of Wise Fruit NYC, which is a seasonal live arts showcase dedicated to the feminine divine um, and honors women-led organizations. Um, and what else do I do? Let's see. <laughs> I am an active performing artist with the percussive trio Souls of Duende. I share the stage with amazing artists, Amanda Castro, tap artist, and Ariel Rosales, a flamenco artist, and I do Kathak. And we converse and create and um, engage with each other through, through rhythm, through our feet. Um, which has been really, really great. And we're the Gibney um, Artists in Residence of 2020, now pushed to 2021. And otherwise, I choreograph a lot. I perform a lot. I teach a lot. I run Kalamandir School now, uh, which was my mother's school, uh, established in 1986. Uh, lastly, I'm an arts administrator with Dance NYC, and I coordinate their annual symposium. Coming up soon. Mm -hmm. I wanted to start by, because I admire so much that you're working at this intersection of art and activism, that you've made that a central part of the work that you're doing. Can you talk about why you think those two things are fundamentally interconnected and how your work as an activist informs your work as an artist and vice versa? Yeah, you know, I've had to bring language to this recently because um, I didn't have any before. I think what this year is teaching me, what the people of this year are teaching me is that I'm not an activist. <laughs> you know, I'm not an activist. Mm -hmm. There are activists who are doing frontline work and it's really important for us to make that distinction because those are the people that are fighting for the liberation for us to express ourselves. 
And our function in this activism that we all take up space in is our function as artists is to elevate the consciousness of of the people, you know, is to keep people open, keep people motivated, keep people inspired, empathetic. And I think in that sense, we're activists, us artists, us performing artists are activists because we are changing the hearts and minds of folks, hopefully for the better, you know, and getting people to consider um, other perspectives. I think that is the function of, of the work that we do when we're a performing artist or when we're in a position to facilitate other minds. Um, in terms of being an activist, I would say more so I'm an organizer than an activist because I really honor the activists that are on the streets and putting their bodies on the line and in the courtrooms and in the board meetings, actually fighting for people's humanity, you know. And so um, it's important to make that distinction first. In terms of activism and art, I mean, art is about people, you know? So activism has to be a part of this. Activism, working towards a more just world has to be part of our discussion in art making because art making reflects the times as Nina Simone once beautifully said, you know, uh, paraphrasing there. but. I think that it's really, really important that for artists, we understand that we have the agency to express ourselves and how we're feeling and how we're doing depends on the time that we're living in and what's happening around us. So I think the two are intrinsically connected. And I think that art is intrinsically political because it's about people. And so whether you are creating a piece about frontline workers or you're creating a piece about a flower <laughs> that's blossoming and changing and growing and making something more beautiful, you are still contributing movement to the humanity of, and to the imagination of people, you know? And so I just think art is inherently political and therefore activism plays in a perfect role. Now, access to art, access to art making, is more of a logistical issue, right? Who has access to creating space for expression? Who's allowed to express? These are things that are very, very political. These are things that require the coordination and the collaboration with activists and organizers and conscience raisers and painters and dancers. This, this requires, and educators, philosophers, this requires us to work together and to figure out how do we make tangible change so that people have access to the same things or the things that they need to liberate themselves, you know? And so, yeah, that's where I am with art and activism. I just, I, I see it less of a, every day we have to get up and do something. I see it less of that. And I, and I don't think anyone gets a trophy for participating in basic civic engagement, mm -hmm. you know? I think it's it's really, really important. To be alive means to to take up space. And to take up space means to contribute to the space that you're taking up, you know? And so for me, that's not really the spirit of activism in our work. I think the spirit of activism in our, in our work is conjuring energy and galvanizing people and getting people in the same room to see, look at what 
would happen if all of us did this? You know, if all of us got behind this thing and what, what creative powers can we get people to show more empathy and compassion to be willing to make these changes for us and for everyone else? I think that's where our power is. I think that's where our activism lies. Thank you for clarifying those terms, too, because I think there has been a lot of fuzziness around that type of language. I'm guilty of it, too, obviously. And specificity of language over this past year, I feel like that's been an especially important part of taking steps forward is finding the correct language for what we're trying to say. So you were also recently a cover model for Dancegeist, which congratulations. Thank you. And you wrote a piece for them in which you talked about, I'm going to quote you, you said, a, quote, multitude of pandemics, unquote, have created for non-marginalized people a, quote, all year past to the ongoing dilemma and experience of marginalized folks everywhere, end quote. And then you issued a call to action to the dance community. And we're going to link to that piece in the episode description so everyone can go and read it for themselves. Please do. But would you like to talk a little about what inspired you to write it, first of all, and then what it is that you're asking dance artists to do specifically? Thank you for bringing that up. My call to action was was stemming from and powered by, you know, the lack of stimulation for change that I think artists need and that I think artists are currently living through and given the opportunity to explore. And because we are recovering and because we are mourning the loss of what we once knew, such as work and such as opportunities and such as marketing and such as the hustle, they say. Um, Since we're mourning the loss of that agenda for ourselves, we're forced to face ourselves, right? And so I like to ask the question, not what, what should we do, but like, what are we returning to? You know, when we come back from this pandemic where are we going what's next you know do we are we struggling this hard to get through this deadly time to go back to the same stuff you know and so if one pandemic can wipe out a year of our livelihood then what is it about the infrastructure of our livelihood that needs to change and it's about that sustainability and so my call to action was to get my fellow artists and peers and students and teachers and collaborators to really consider decolonizing their own practices and changing their own expectations of the work that they're doing and the work that they want to return to and and changing the premise completely before re-entering this world that is now fundamentally different. It's fundamentally different because now we have that knowledge that a pandemic can wipe us out, that we're the first to go and we're the last to come back. And the way people coped during this pandemic was to watch artists, was to experience artists. And yet we're in a line of work that doesn't have the right infrastructure yet. So there's so much work that we could be doing. And the article was meant to really talk about what those action items should be. And then as I was writing, I realized I'm pissed. I'm pissed at us for not seeing big picture because we're capable of so much. No other profession requires 
that dancers show up completely ready for their job. Any other job I've ever had, I could be a little sleepy when I walked in the door. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I can't be sleepy and dance. I can't even I can't even dance if I'm sleepy. There's so much we're capable of and yet we're all striving to go back to the same old where we are accepting jobs way under what we should be paid, where we are too scared to speak up in an abusive situation, where we are being asked to do things that are way outside of the job description and not having the language for boundaries, where we are, you know, asking our dancers to do things constantly for free, but also, you know, if we are going to pay them or if we you know, whatever the situation is, are we even prepared to walk into the space to lead the space? Like, none of these questions are answered. And yet, we're dying for this pandemic to be over so we can get back to work. And so and these are the very questions, fundamental questions that if we don't collaborate with activists and organizers and policymakers, that the next time something comes around, we're still going to have a health insurance issue. We're still going to have an economy issue. We are still going to have a job issue. And so the, the writing prompt was really about shaking us and getting us to be like, we, got, we have so much work we could be doing right now. And it doesn't mean work as in hustle. It means work as in that heart work and that mind work about how are we returning? What have we learned? What can we change right now? We can't change it all. But what's this list look like? And not wasting our time because we're not going to get this time back. But then also trying to consider the reader's feelings <laughs> and the reader's emotions and understanding that people are mourning and it's natural to want to go back to feeling useful. And so challenging, challenging the readers was my purpose. I wanted to challenge us to reconsider the premise of what we're returning to as an industry. Because I think that change starts inside, you know, and I think that inside change will lead to structural and policy change in the way we run our dance studios and the way we run our dance conventions and the way we show up to residencies and to universities and to the stage. And so it was a check-in, but I wanted to definitely, you know, ruffle some feathers to see if people could ask themselves questions honest questions as dancers, as teachers, as choreographers, am I doing enough of this stuff? And can I move forward? This is so much of what we've talked about on the podcast, too. There's been a lot of mourning, which is totally fine and normal. But this idea of, oh, the pandemic has broken everything, so much of it was broken beforehand. So as you were saying, this idea of reimagining. And actually, the next few questions are things that you said in your pre-interview, our pre-interview correspondence, that you wanted to get into. And a lot of it is about doing that reimagining during this time. So let's start with the first one you brought up, which is anti-racism in classrooms. Mm -hmm. What are some of the most persistent and insidious racist practices that you see in dance classrooms? And how can we work to eliminate them? You know, it's funny. Insidious is a good word. In my line of work, I actually only have really one perspective of this. So I want to just dis put that disclaimer out that I don't think that this is everybody's experience. But I do think I speak for a lot of folks who are functioning in a very Eurocentric dance model economy <laughs> uh, and a white space uh, for us people of color who kind of bring in quote unquote world dance into the space 
um, we have to navigate some of these things. There may be some overlap with other folks in, in, in that regard. But I would say some of the more insidious practices in the classrooms are really this notion of diversity being a one-time experience. I think that's kind of the most painful for me now. I'm excited about the paycheck, don't get me wrong, but when I put that aside, I'm not really excited about the experience because what somebody else is considering a dollop of information, I'm considering it as my identity in my life's work. So when someone calls me in, and I will speak on behalf of myself, but I hope that other people relate to this and I think other people will, that when we're hired to provide a quote unquote cultural experience, for a dance studio or a convention, what you're really asking us to do is condense hundreds and thousands of years of information into a marketable 75-minute class. And so when that happens, we are missing the nuance and the details that actually make the dance what it is because otherwise it's just a bunch of steps and it's actually really really hard to consider the cultural experience that one wants to have it's hard to consider that when I don't have time to actually talk about the history that brought us there that brought us to this point of wanting to grasp what a mudra is what tatkar or footwork is why do Kathak dancers turn, you know, constantly spin? There's a full history behind spinning in Kathak. You know, like how do I how do I tell that to a random suburban dance studio who just wants me there for 75 minutes to say that their children are having a cultural experience at their dance studio? That's really, really hard for me to reckon with. And so that's some of the more, in, that's, that's one insidious example of, I would, I would consider structural and institutional racism, you know, is really bringing in something under the guise of diversity and inclusion, but really not matching the experience that's being had with the actual conditions that are just for the artist whether that be low pay or whether that be the inability to craft the class the way that I would want to or request the time that I would want to have with the students. Like I'm one of those dance teachers that asks, all right, is this once or can I come a few times? Because it doesn't make sense for me to work with your, with your people once. I understand a few times means more money, but how, how do we work together here so this is not just a dollop of information? And I, there's a lot of labor that goes in for me to condense that information for a full experience for children <laughs> in one class. And so because my name is on the product, my name is on the marketing. If it's a piece I'm setting, my name is on the piece right? So I have to do my due diligence to make sure that my work stands for itself. But then how do I do it under these conditions? And so, and the fact that there's literally no conversation around that, because there's so many other people that are dying for that job, or dying for another paycheck, that I am easily replaceable on top of all of that. You know, these are some of the ways in which the desire for diversity and inclusion is actually really harmful 
to the people that can help you be more diverse and inclusive. That's one thing, you know, obviously uh, appropriation in the classroom, in dance. The appropriation aspect of it is kind of the most obvious. Again, from my experience as a quote unquote world dance instructor, it's, you know, and I say quote unquote, because for me, in my experience, I'm not a world dancer, <laughs> I'm a dancer, right? But on the backdrop of of white dance and Eurocentric dance forms, I'm considered world dance, right? People of color who bring in their cultural background and their art are considered world dance. And so that in itself already sets us up in a weird way, right? Um, but going with that lingo, as a world, quote unquote, world dance teacher, I go into spaces and I, I see the appropriation as literally probably the first thing that I see whether it be something as simple as in contemporary class, people trying to put in hip hop or, you know, or in hip hop class, people trying to put in, you know, uh, martial arts <laughs> because the theme is, is, you know, something to do with Kung Fu or Tai Chi or whether that be a Bollywood number that has no idea how it got there. <laughs> you know? It's just like these moments of, of, of total random inspiration, right? It's totally random. And it's there because it's that wow factor. Again, it adds to the marketability. And cultural appropriation is defined as appropriating one's culture for their own benefit. So if you're marketing yourself and you're getting these resources and these dividends that are produced because of your work and those things come back to just you and not the communities that gave you that knowledge, then that's appropriation. It's really hard as a dance teacher to just stay positive in those moments. You know, I tend to be the voice <laughs> that comes into the room and says, you know, I think we should change these things because I think we don't know enough about this stuff, <laughs> you know? And I think it's, I understand the moment we're trying to have, but at whose expense, you know? So the next topic that you mentioned is actually related in many ways. You wanted to talk about decolonizing syllabi. So what can teachers do? What can institutions do to make sure they're presenting a non-Eurocentric view of dance to their students? Yeah, that's a great question. There's actually a lot of <clears throat> immediate things we can do. Um, and then there's also steps that will, will take some time, I think, to implement, to get people on board. Some of the immediate things are uh, devoting five to 10 minutes of class at the top of class or during warm-up or you know, finding a way to weave it into the conversations that are being had about dance history and specifically about the history of what you're going to be doing today. That is something that is really missing. And I think dance educators can fix that right now. You know, they can fix that right now, <laughs> tomorrow, <laughs> by, by coming in prepared to talk about the why behind the what. I think um, our dedication to perfectionism can go. I, I don't think that that's natural. Um, I think that's one way of decolonizing the space, looking into the mirror at ourselves or facing this leader in the room uh, feels unnatural and feels very much towards this uh, supremacist structural way of leader and 
those who follow uh, without any interaction or understanding of the communal aspect of the space, which is what the experience of a pay for your dance class is supposed to be, right? So teaching in circles, teaching by looking at each other instead of always facing the front, teaching with traveling steps, understanding how to use space, that's one way of really decolonizing the classroom and making sure that everything is not this individualistic way of expressing yourself. It's not about you and how you do the combo. It's about how you move with the, with the movers around you. Definitely get rid of, you know, old, tired gender norms of boys and girls and and finding this binary that's super harmful to our trans and non-binary communities just just eliminating that way of categorizing people and uh eliminating identifiers that are established by the person who has the power in the room and allowing the agency for the people participating in the room to identify themselves. That really brings this autonomy to the work and then it brings autonomy to the learning. And then there is this actual co-existence that's happening that happens in decolonized societies all over the world. Now, do I think discipline is super great? It's a great tool for our students to be in uniform, to be disciplined, to be, you know, that kind of stuff is awesome. But then finding out that within that, there are levels of humanity that must be addressed. So if you have, if you have, you know, uniforms, then how do I make sure that this theme of a uniform works for everybody that's in this classroom? It doesn't need to be the exact uniform. Maybe it's a theme because everyone's body's different. Everyone's skin tone is different. Everyone's hair is different. You know, we can change our expectations. Maybe the rule is hair out of your face, not hair in a certain type of bun. Maybe, you know, the rule is flesh colored, whatever, so that you can, and here are the resources so you can find what you need to get what you need. You know, maybe these are the things that we can be saying as opposed to saying, this is how it goes. And if you don't do it, then there will be punitive measures. I think that that is a very colonized mindset that if you don't do what I say, you will be punished. As opposed to I'm giving you the resources that you need to complete the job in a way that will best serve you based on my experience. And I'm here to guide you. So how do we reach success together? And what resources do you need? And what can I use my power for to provide for you? So yeah. And those are such simple changes. Right. Like you say something like decolonizing syllabi. And I think to some people that sounds scary or really drastic, but it's really not. So much of it is so yeah, yeah. straightforward. I mean, not all of it, but, but so much of it. Um, I don't mean to rush us through all these big topics, but I want to make sure we get to everything you wanted to touch on. Sure. You brought up the hypersexualization of children in dance when we were emailing. And it feels like it shouldn't be hard to get everyone to agree that sexualizing children is a bad idea. So why is this still happening so frequently in the dance world? Mm-hmm. Money. It's money. It's capital gain, you know? So when you have this like 
high powered machine that's blowing you in the direction of get the most amount of eyes on your kid as possible, your guard goes down. And I think that dance makers, especially convention owners and studio owners, unfortunately, are the perpetrators of these practices um, because they're also they're also manipulating the parents in a way. Don't get me wrong. I've had my share of uh, parents that I've had disagreements with about certain things, but it really is the driving force behind this are the people that are staging the kids. It's not only hypersexualization of children, it's also just, it's, it's unsafe practices to have kids performing in adult venues late at night around drunk people. And people love that every single person is trying to open a kid's company. Why is that? Because we know that when you charge $200 a kid, that you're going to bank that quarter. And, and it's going to give you a lot of clout because you got a bunch of talented kids to listen to you. So as a teacher, as a dance teacher of children, <laughs> I can honestly say that the gift of teaching children is, is profound. And I'm sure that these choreographers feel it. I'm sure that they feel a gift when they see these talented children doing what they need to do. But the minute they make those decisions to get them into an unsafe space, then we have to push back on their priorities. And then we have to push back on what it is that they're actually after. Because at the end of the day, if our kids are not safe, then we have no business making money off them. Dancing to moves that they have no idea and they won't know for the next 25 years what that means. Yeah, they don't know, you know what they're selling. Yeah. Yeah, they have no idea what they're selling and it's unsafe because there's a lot of predators out there. Um, we're jumping from huge topic to huge topic, whiplash, but... <laughs> Politically speaking, it's a turbulent, that's like a terrible euphemism. It's a wild time, politically speaking. Yeah. Does the political climate here in the United States, how is it affecting your artistic practice? Mm. Oh, that's loaded. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you something. I'll tell you something. I am so unmotivated to choreograph. I am so, so, so stressed out by the state of our country and the state of our standing in the world and our safety. Because um, it's like our worst nightmare as women and people of color and gay people of color to see what's going on <laughs> in the world right now. It's like our worst nightmare. And it happens at the Capitol building, you know, on display. There's that voice in our head that's just like, where's the lesson in all of this? Let's turn it into a good, positive thing. Let's flip it on its head. Let's go. That shows our worth. Our ability to flip it on its head shows our worth, you know? And so that's really dehumanizing for people who are suffering from, from, from this news. And we're all suffering from this news. Um, in my article, I spoke about a multitude of pandemics I think it's, uh, I'd be remiss not to mention, of course, the deep, deep, deep racial reckoning that's happening in our nation this year. The person, the people of color's kind of complicity in upholding those structures, because people have a really easy time grouping, you know, people of color have a really easy time grouping themselves in with Black folks when it's convenient and backing out when it's no longer convenient. 
And so uh, understanding my complicity in that, understanding my family and my friends' complicity in that, uh, trying to find ways that we can amplify uh, the voices and the liberation of Black people um, has been a cornerstone of my unlearning process that I'm engaging in now, is understanding that just because I have melanin in my skin does not mean that I haven't been complicit in the upholding of white supremacy in this country, because the immigrant story is very, very, very different than black folk story here. There's so much to organize in my mind. And so really that has stopped my artistic practice in a creative way. That's personal for me. I'm not speaking on behalf of anyone else. I'm still simmering on, on this year and I'm, I'm not that moved to create new things more than I am moved to redefine things I've already made. I mean, really just like going backward and starting from scratch has been more so my jam this year than uh, creating, you know, uh, quarantine masterpieces. (laughs) (laughs) But I do have a couple quarantine projects that I'd made. Don't get me wrong. I have two that one with my company and one for election day that I made. But yeah, the, the world and the news right now has really impacted us on, on fundamental levels. We're, we're still in it. So we'll see. We'll see. My, my ultimate goal is to define the industry that we want to return to. If we can design that as a community, it's unstoppable because dancers, dancers never stop. Dancers can't stop because we need to viscerally feel the world. And so if that's the case, then there's no reason why we can't organize and envision a world of of liberation, but it's going to require dismantling a bunch of other stuff that lives within us. And so I think that's the period that we're in. Yeah. And that that first step in designing it, which is defining it. Yeah. 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 I want to thank you so much for sharing your insight and perspective, because you've put in so much work, all of this thought in developing language around all these ideas. I really appreciate you sharing that with us, sharing that with our listeners and with me too. I've, I've learned so much just from listening to you right now in this hour. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, really, I, I look forward to the dance edit uh, in my inbox and I look forward <laughs> to all the work that you all do. So thank you so much. Oh, thanks. That's nice to hear. Before we go, can you just let people know where they can follow you to keep up to date on everything that's going on? Oh my goodness. What do you want to know? <laughs> all, so the, much- all the goods. All the goods. Okay. So I'm going to go for it. Ready? Uh, my individual work is at, uh, Brinda Guha, B-R-I-N-D-A-G-U-H-A. My company work can be found at Kalamandir Dance. It's K-A-L-A-M-A-N-D-I-R-D-A-N-C-E. The trio that I spoke of, our lovely percussive trio with Amanda Castro, Ariel Rosales, and myself is Souls of Duende. That's S-O-L-E-S-O-F-D-U-E-N-D-E. 
Uh, Wise Fruit NYC is my organization for the feminine divine. You can follow us at Wise Fruit NYC, W-I-S-E-F-R-U-I-T-N-Y-C. And lastly, I work for uh, Dance NYC, which is a service organization for dancers based in the values of justice, equity, and inclusion. And we are producing our first ever all virtual uh, symposium that's based in justice, education, and transformation. It's coming up March 17th to the 20th, and you can follow our work at dance.nyc. Yeah, friend of the pod, Dance NYC. Yes. Um, we'll include all those links in our episode description too, so you can find them there as well. Awesome. Thank you so much again. This was fantastic. Thank you so much, Margaret, and have an awesome day. Thanks again to Brenda. Uh, one more reminder to sign up for the Dance NYC Symposium, which she's coordinating, because it's actually going to go deeper into, even deeper, she went very deep, but it's going to go even deeper into so many of the topics she discussed during her interview and, you know, the upside of a virtual symposium is you don't have to be in New York City to attend. So please visit dance.nyc. That's the website, dance.nyc, to register before tomorrow's deadline. All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining us for this podcast birthday episode. We will be back next week for more discussion of the news that's moving the dance world. Keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing. Mind how you go, friends. Bye, everyone. The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, Lydia Murray, and Cadence Meenan. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those football sounds. Find out more about the Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. Thank you.